Welcome to another broadcast in an ongoing series of special reports devoted to new and timely books. This is Richard Pyatt, Director of Programming. And with us in the studio today is Anne Fremantle, whose new book, A Primer of Linguistics, has just been published by St. Martin's Press. Our guest is the author of more than 30 books and a vast number of magazine and newspaper articles. She is a graduate of Oxford University and holds an MA in Modern Languages from that institution. At various times in her life, she's been a candidate for Parliament, World War II ambulance driver, a TV and radio commentator, <laughs> an editor at the UN, and a teacher at several universities. And uh, Oh, you have to smile at that ambulance driver because Miss Fremantle is the essence of fragility in appearance. And uh, we, we would wonder at your uh, turning one of those World War II ambulance wheels around. But uh, I, I guess it gives... Uh, verification to that saying that women really are the stronger sex. So, but certainly in what you've done here with the Primer of Linguistics, this is a uh, saying to you just before we started, this is a very unusual book. I think it's unusual in its approach to the study of linguistics. And before we frighten off any uh, person, any general reader who is not specializing in linguistics, nor even never thought of it, uh, is it for, is a, in your view, do you feel this is a book that would give a perception to anyone who has used his native language? I think really the point of the book is to find out what, where linguistics came from. I wrote it because I didn't know myself. I wanted to find something out. And I was, I'm very interested in words being a writer and, and words are the things I live by and, and uh, I think all human beings exist by words. I mean, we're human because we speak. But I didn't know where this whole idea of linguistics, where language itself came from. And um, this, it took me a very long way back. I had to go back to the Sanskrit sources uh, people like Patanjali, who were thousands of years before Christ. Well, we, when, we, when you say you didn't know where linguistics, well, I, what I meant is the present science. You know, that it's taught in I don't know how many, about several hundred colleges now in the states, um, and all over the world, linguistics is taught. And the word, of course, linguistics, when I was young, didn't exist. The word That's what I was about to ask you. You know, the word uh, itself. It, the word itself it was. I mean, there were, of course, great lingu linguists like Jespersen and all these people, and. and in the 19th, early 20th century. But when, when the science of linguistics or the study of linguistics didn't, uh, when, when I was at Oxford, for instance, we never talked about linguistics like that. And now it's everywhere. I mean, you have linguistics uh, up to, up yeah. to one's ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the term, though, for a person would mean what? It just means the science of language, how language started, how languages develop, how languages are or aren't written, because after all, there are hundreds of languages which never get written down. I think and you linguistics say, yes. is, all, all, is all that. You say in your book that language began somewhere approximately when man began to use tools. That's right. Uh, the, 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 the tool, man is a tool-bearing or tool-using uh, ape or whatever he was, we were then, uh, <laughs> was at the, uh, it's roughly the same time that he started communicating. Because if you have a tool, you have to do something about getting your the, the ape next door, the man next door, mm -hmm. to, to share. I mean, there are a lot of tools that, that are used uh, by more than one person. It, the, 
you have done this in a geographical organizational plan, but is it also chronological? In terms yes, it's very much chronological. Uh-huh. I did it from the, right to the beginning, from the, the, the early Sanskrit uh, people, right down to people like Noam Chomsky, who's, of course, one of the great bigwigs of today. Now, you, you start uh, in ancient India, and this is a very... Uh, when you read these chapters, if a person sits down, he says, well, I'm going to read this book... Uh, I don't advise them to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) I advise them to use this book. To use the book. That's, I I, I think that's even a, that's a... A linguistic distinction. uh, Yes, and one that we don't often hear. But if you were going to use it, now, how does the average person, or is this book written for the average person? It's written for the average person who, like myself, is interested in words and language. You're not an average person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very average about linguistics. Then... Uh, uh, could there be a broadened interest in this? Uh, what I'm getting at is, when you do open the book, I think you're in for a surprise, because we, uh, we, we find uh, om is really practically uh, the first word. And om is a very well-known term in uh, latter-day interests in psychic evolution, because it's one of those words that is used to practice meditation sure. upon. Yeah. And it's interesting to find that uh, but it's one of the primeval sounds, you see. It's it's one of the first sounds. It's, it's, that's, again, part of linguistics and terribly interesting. The first sounds that people made and that tr- babies make now, of course, you know, that, that they always say dada before mama, which ah. is nothing to do with, with being anti-woman's lib. Well, why do they do uh, that? Well, because it's something to do with the confirmation of the label confirmation. It's easier for the, for the mouth to say dada. And da is yes in many languages, Russian, well, for instance. that's an unusual conclusion. Most, I think, speech therapists and speech practitioners would disagree with you that it's uh, much more difficult to produce uh, a voiced phoneme uh, as d than it is to say mm. Well, all I can say is oh, I've never known a baby in my own small experience, having only had three, mm-hmm. but uh, many of my friends have had as many or more that didn't start with dada, very often to the, to the sorrow of the mother who <laughs> thinks it ought to start with mama. <laughs> but yes. uh, in fa- actual fact, da is also the affirmative in, in, in for instance, Russian. And a lot of languages, dada, um, in uh, Romanian, in Russian, dada mm-hmm. is, is the word for yes. Well, it's a curious thing. In adults, it's much more difficult to get an adult to produce a d sound than a nasal uh, consonant of m and the vowel a. I wonder if that's because they're teeth. I'm no, it's because, I never thought about it, it's because uh, it's much more difficult to do physically, I mean, kinesthetically. Ah. Uh, ah. But yeah. uh, and it's an interesting uh, factor that, uh, yeah. the, that a, an infant would, would produce the more difficult sound uh, right from the very beginning. But that, that, that is what linguistics is all about. That's, well, it's one of the things it's One of the about. things. Yes. It yes. brings in these fascinating ideas. Yes, and all this whole, th- the whole uh, structure of languages which have no written... Um, written down. For instance, we live in Mexico part of the year, and in Mexico there are about a hundred languages, not dialects, many of which have never been written down at all, and which are pure, some are, are several thousand people, some are only a few hundred people, but they are real languages and, and old ones, they're pre-Columbian languages, and now uh, there are a lot of interesting partisan groups studying these languages and with computers, and, and I went to their headquarters. From the linguistic point of view, it's fascinating what you can do with a language which is not written. Well, in your first section here, uh, 
when you give the first, uh, uh, the ancient India and you first Kanda and all of this, did you have to tra- translate this from the Sanskrit? No, I have no Sanskrit. It's all translated uh, from Max Müller on in the middle of the 19th century. All the great texts have been translated. I got, had to use them, of course, and most of them had the Sanskrit uh, simultaneously on the page so that um, th- that uh, if anyone wants to check whether the translation is adequate, they can go back. I've, I've given the sources. I, uh, just one little quote from this. Uh, we're taking this way out of context, but uh, in, in uh, the second Kanda, and part two, he says, he who reverences speech as Brahma, as far as speech goes, so far he has unlimited freedom. He who reverences speech as Brahma. And then, is there, sir, more than speech? There is assuredly more than speech. Do you, sir, tell me it? And then you get into the third kanda, which has a lot of interesting, uh, additionally interesting concepts that dealing with terms that, again, uh, there has been a lot of interest lately in karma, in in mantras and all of that. Indeed. And we see its origins beginning way back here. Well, not to dwell too long on this, you do go in then after ancient India, you've researched the next area and development. Is this an evolutionary type study? Well, it's not. Steps are not always forward. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I think ancient India was in advance on the Greeks, but uh, curiously enough, about speech. But the, I do have a great deal of the Greeks, and then I have the early Christians, and of course Augustine, who was particularly interested, who had this fascinating concept about the relationship between sound and time. His his study of music. Uh, had this whole thing, this whole idea, which I think he was the first person to write down, mm-hmm. that uh, that sound depends on the time intervals between the sounds. Yes. And um, the, his de musica is... Did you find any of that in later theories as you progressed in researching the book? Well, I think it comes into, into some of the post-Cartesians also. But um, not so clearly. Nobody put it quite as clearly as that. Of course, I, I imagine that musicologists today would, would have the same ideas. And of course, Wittgenstein had quite a lot of ideas on that of, of that order, rather mystical ideas about the relationship of time and uh, sound and, what, and words. What, just for a moment, could you tell us a little more about that? The relationship. How would you do? How would you describe it? What is the relationship between sound well, and time? Well, to put it as simply as possible. Uh, the, the moment I'm speaking, or, or you're speaking, th- th- is the moment when uh, we are in, the, the, in, ti- in, we are sounding in time, yes. and the silence is o- o- also time. But of course, it's measured. It's, it's, there are two different measures of time, and they are the only two measures we have of time: sound and silence. Yes. There is no other possibility of measuring time in, uh, without, uh, I mean, all sorts of mm-hmm. modern instruments. But, I mean, f- for, for primitive and uh, people and for philosophers generally, sound and silence are the two alternate measures of time by which you measure time. I, I suppose then that old psychological question about if there is no one to hear a sound... Where is it? Where is it? Yes. Would be taken up by the interval of silence. That's right. And that's, you see, one of the great questions. Where is, where is the, the, the uh, second movement of the sevens when it isn't being played? <laughs> 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 that uh, reminds me of uh, 
some of the uh, earlier psychological discussions, I think, you were called the great schools, and they would debate these fine points until they did away with that and said, well, we'll move on to behaviorism and, and really get down to brass tacks. <laughs> Our guest is Anne Fremantle, and uh, we're talking about her book, A Primer of Linguistics. And I suppose, in addition to using this book, as you suggest, that you really have done a great deal of research for anyone who might like to get at the bottom or at the beginning of how how the words we use came to be in most parts because the new world's new theories chapter is very fascinating in 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 really delineating the concept behind the usage of terms such as pronouns and nouns and it's very interesting chapter on nouns. I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you're interested in it because, uh, you know, it, 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 it is quite difficult stuff to read. It's, it's marvellous when, when, when you're interested in it. But I think that, uh, the, that the fact that you are interested in it is, is, to me, very fascinating. Well, it, it, but we, the more we uh, try to communicate, the more we realise that we are communicating with very flimsy tools yes. uh, at best. Uh, these symbols that we use, and we recognize that other symbols are used in other places, and altogether different type symbols which you write about also. And there's one society that communicates by whistling. Yes. Uh, and, and that would get us into a lot of trouble for some of us who can't whistle. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the old English uh, adage, you know, a whistling woman, a crowing hen, neither good for God nor men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the... What is interesting about this, and I, I think what would attract a person beyond the mere research of this, is the close integration of philosophy and uh, ideas regarding life that are intermingled with the study of uh, of words and the linguistic study. Yes, and I think the the um, very fine ling linguistic professor who did the introduction to this book, Dr. Samuel Anderson, I think he puts it very clearly in, in his introduction as to why the average person should be interested and can be interested in this kind of thing. He's, he, he does a, a beautiful, in two or three pages, he does a, a beautiful um, description of, of why and how a, a non-specialized uh, person can and, and is naturally interested. What surprised you most when you started to research, let's say, new worlds and new theories? How very lately it was, it was only in the 18th century, that people discovered languages without writing. Writing is so old, you see Sumer they wrote and, and uh, all over the Fertile Crescent. And it wasn't until after the discovery of the New World that peoples were found without writing. Mm -hmm. And it's still an astonishment to me, having grown up in Europe, that there are peoples of such enormous interest with no writing. And uh, it obviously how did they, thrilled them. How did they keep records? Well, they made pictographs. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Mayans and the, and the um, uh, uh, American Indians, they, they painted on rocks or they painted right. on, on uh, pottery, but there were no words. And it is absolutely fascinating to me because you can be human and so developed and use words all the time, but not write them down. I think that's the most astonishing. Yeah, would, would the same apply to the Egyptians somewhat? Very much less, because they did have a script, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, each the, the script was, was able to be read uh, by local by, by other people who lived around. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't decipher it till the Rosetta Stone. But the fact that the Rosetta Stone had Greek, Latin, and several other languages meant that uh, they were communicable. I think in in your book somewhere there's a contention that the Egyptians were first in. Uh, the advanced aspect of, yes. of the written language, yes. uh, rather than the Christians. Oh, much, much, much earlier. Yes, oh. earlier, but we're and much more advanced. Mm-hmm. Yes, much more advanced. I think I think they were much more advanced in a lot of things. I mean, I think we, we get so much from them, uh, mythically and um, in lots of. Is that what you meant when you said earlier it was not necessarily evolutionary, but no, in 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 it goes in in actual. Fact, they got there first. <laughs> yes, is, is what I meant. Well, for example, uh, from this uh, uh, chapter two of New Worlds, New Theories, just to give a taste of how uh, ideas are developed about terms and words, there's a section on the verb, and I won't go into the beginning or all, but just to take it to extract here, extrapolate just a, uh, one point. They have they're talking about the verb, and they have joined to it that of some attribute, so that when two words constitute a proposition, as when I say, Petrus vivit, Peter lives, because the word vivit contains in itself the affirmation, and moreover, the attribute of being alive. Thus, it is the same thing to say, Peter lives, as it is to say, Peter is living. Now, <laughs> this goes on and on, and you can, you get an entire religiosity and a feeling of, of, of how words are controlling seem to control the philosophic and religious thoughts that that have later developed. Oh, very much so. And also, curiously, different nations use different parts of the verb. In England, for instance, we always say, I like dancing, which is the present participle. In America, someone would say, I like to dance. Yes. And it's most interesting that we always use the present participle, I like swimming, I don't like swimming, I do, you know, things like that. And here, it's the infinitive, too. Well, you also, is there a word in, in a slang word we have here that says, uh, don't come near my turf, meaning, uh, you know, stay away from my, my, my neighborhood? Yes, or yes. My, it, it, The word in uh, England, I think, is manor. Is it manor for that? For turf? Mm-hmm. Oh, turf is, is, is grass. Well... I mean, not, not the grass <laughs> <and> smoke. <laughs> yes, and, I, and, and turf is not necessarily grass. Turf means uh, my possession. That's right. It means the bit of, of the earth that's, yes. that's that's mine. But it has come to mean, in a very narrow sense, anything of mine. Don't don't yeah, yes. don't because, get in my because, area. Of course, the first the first um, thing that a person owns is is um, a, a bit of land, and the last thing he has is his grave. So it's yeah. always turf. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you see uh, how all of this can uh, uh, sound to you if you start reading this book. You can start talking like we're talking, making absolutely no sense. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that with tongue in cheek, of course. But you, <laughs> you, uh, uh, just to give a scope here of where the book goes. You then go to the, uh, from the Romantics to you have a chapter called From Romantics to Naturalists. And when, in the study of of linguistics, one study, and I wonder if you touch upon much of this in this chapter, uh, where the the use of verbs got to be, uh, I forget how increased when Shakespeare came along as opposed to Dante. 
uh, Dante used more adjectives and more nouns, and Shakespeare got to be very verbal, although he used a great many adjectives, mm. but the verbs being somewhat of an action word, would that be responsible for the durability of Shakespeare in terms of living with him even in the 20th century, say, than, than living with Dante? Well, we were taught that um, when uh, I was at Oxford, that uh, verbs were much um, better things around which to build one sentence, and that adjectives should be dispensed with. And of course, I, I don't know if there people are taught that here, but when one's writing a, a piece about anything, cut out all the adjectives. It's only in my native Scotland that, they're, they're, that to, to be adjectival mm -hmm. is um, considered a good thing. Somebody will say he's fair adjectival, meaning <laughs> that he's a good talker. It means, uh, too, there was more sophistication and abstraction that came into the language. And also strength. A and verb strength? is a much stronger thing. Oh, yes, with the verb, but yeah. I'm talking about the adjectives. Oh, yes. no, adjectives are, are sort of like embroidery, aren't they? Well, verbs were, were sort of basic. If we go back to Tarzan, yeah. uh, if he wanted something, he simply would say, use a verb, go. And then maybe he got a little more sophisticated. He said, you go. But, I, but the, the verb is sort of what started us off. Is, and in is that Chinese, true? And in Chinese, there's nothing but the verbs. I oh, mean, really? they're adverbs, but there, there are no uh, um, persons, personal pronouns. And, the simply, and there are no tenses of the verb. There's simply the verb. And go yesterday or go tomorrow... And however many people go is is, um, is, is suggested by by adverbs. It's, How it's do you reconcile your interest, since you mentioned the Chinese, in written language, with the idea that the Chinese language, when it's written down, loses its or does not necessarily lose, but certainly doesn't connotate its full meaning as uh, contrasted with a spoken Chinese, which depends on tone so much. Well, I think you take a language as it is. You know, if some languages are richer and some are poorer. French, which is is a language I delight in, but it's one of the poorest languages as far as, as number of words and number. You can say a thing one way in France and no, that's it. Whereas um, I believe in Russian, there are about five words, uh, five verbs for every um, activity. You know, it, it depends on the richness of the language. I think languages vary like people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting what you were saying about the go, about the thing. This, all these new techniques for teaching um, animals, especially monkeys, they, they concentrate on the verbs yeah. very, very much. And they can get the, the, these monkeys use verbs first. And just like Tarzan, they really do say go or have a symbol for go. By the way, you can read about that in Anne Fremantle's book. She writes a great deal about that uh, in this book, Primer of Linguistics. We're going to sort of ask a final question or two here now. And I, I'm interested, you, you take it up to the contemporary scene one and contemporary scene two, and I'm reminded of a book that I have enjoyed in the past by Wendell Johnson called People in Quandaries. And that book and the ideas there uh, have always left an imprint with me that people are indeed enslaved by words. And when you bring this up to contemporary <coughs> scene number two, how much of Chomsky's uh, views do you feel propagate that particular theory? 
Well, I don't take sides. You know, the Chomsky's, uh, there's are very many people for him and against him. And I'm absolute taro in this, and I don't know enough to take sides. I'm interested in any theory, but I wouldn't dare take sides. I mean, I, I, I'm not uh, in a position uh-huh. to take sides. I just know these things, these different, various, very contradictory theories exist. And I think it's important that they should exist together. What kind of impression are you left with personally? I mean, do you feel that words that we are really victimized by words. I think they're very dangerous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're not using many of them to answer that question, though. <laughs> Perhaps because I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, you can read all of the research that uh, Ms. Fremantle has really taken. Uh, uh, how long did it take you to do all of this? About two years. Two years of research, you see. She well, one year to research, one year to write. To write it. Yeah. Now think, if you had to go to the library and, and start looking, if you had an interest in this, and start looking all up how much time it would take you, and then if you didn't have the mind of Anne Fremantle, you'd never get it done. So think what she's done for you, and uh, has given you a kind of peek at your source. And uh, we have been speaking with Anne Fremantle, and her new book, A Primer of Linguistics, is published by St. Martin's Press. This has been another broadcast in an ongoing series of special reports devoted to new and timely books.